Hello friends, welcome back to the Candy for Trees podcast. I am Persephone Jam and I am your host with the most. Welcome back. I'm sorry I've been on hiatus for the last few weeks. It's been kind of a crazy time and I switched from conlang to playwriting and it's not been the like the most organized of times, so I haven't podcasted much. I apologize for that. So Today, I am, as a reward for y'all, hopefully a reward, I am going to do some storytelling. This is a story five years in the making and is also my first and most recently released play. In, I'm going to try to sum it up in 20 minutes. If I go over, then there will be more episodes, but it's basically going to be like, I'm going to not look at my computer shutting it down now, and try to tell the play off the top of my head. This could get interesting. So stay tuned, folks, and I will be right back. All right, so our story begins one balmy summer evening, as according to the play. Like, I I can quote that segment from memory, this is bad. Like, I've seen it this much. So... Let's go. Our story begins one balmy summer evening on a war-torn world. And it really is war-torn. Like, they've been fighting. It's been a bloodbath for, like, the last 50-ish years. Like, the God Emperor was only ousted 43 years ago by a very uh, odd man named Walter Marsh. And he managed to kill the God Emperor with the power of Lavender, which is very important in this play and in the place to come. And so his war buddies ended up settling down or getting dispersed or killed and having kids. Now, there are a few kids who are very, very important in this play. Um, Tara Celine, Tara Thompson Celine, to be specific, daughter of Calvin and Luna Thompson, the Imperial Torturers. Yeah, this play gets dark. And um, she is dubious in her own right, pretty much. And she is she is kind of the reason why the play is named Lavender and Scissors in the first place. And you'll see why coming up. And another person who is very, very important... Two, two people, actually. Two people who are very, very important are Joanna Series Astros, the daughter of the woman in red, the woman in white, sorry, the woman in white, the daughter of the woman in white who was born into basically imperial captivity and forced to become the, like, captive wife of the second in command of the empire and it was not a good time for her but she ends up having two daughters so pardon me three people kira astros who becomes the supreme commander of the empire after her father after she comes of age and theo astros her half-sister with a burned man named prometheus prometheus was known as pit when he was smaller like teenager time but he became Prometheus after he stole fire from the gods, as he says. He ended up taking a jewel fragment to study, because he can pretty much solve anything. 
and study anything and like get knowledge from it. And he took this jewel fragment after Walt. Uh, no, no, not a jewel fragment. Jewel fragment, not a jewel fragment. An actual jewel, like the this jewel that makes gods immortal, from Walter Marsh to study. And it burned over a third of his body because he didn't have any god blood in him. This is important because only people with the blood of a god or part god can touch one of those jewels and live. So it froze his aging as well. So he's in constant pain. He gives Joanna Ceres Astros her voice back by teaching her how to sign because she's mute. Forcibly mute. He, the, Her captor husband got tired of her like freaking out all the time and cut her tongue out. Again, dark. And so Prometheus taught her how to sign and to use thoughts to communicate. It's basically like extensive training and stuff. And so they have a kid, Theo. Now, according to these prophecies, the first prophecy is, of course, the son will kill the father. Marsh kills Twine, the god emperor, and takes his jewel for himself. And no one really knows what happens to the jewel, and it got taken away as soon as Prometheus started studying it, and it whole, the whole thing exploded, and yeah, long story short, not fun. But um, after this... Like, there's a second prophecy. The woman in white, Marta Astros, and the woman in red, Archer Marin, once they get along, the world will start to know peace again. And that's very important, because they don't get along at first. So that's a story for a different day, but holy cow, do they not get along. And Marta has this sword. The sword is the sword of her enemy, which is very, very powerful in this realm, because you don't wield the sword of your enemy lightly. And that's another story that we will save for later. Um, but, yet another person in this world that is important is, yeah, and you've heard about Theo and Kira, but also Tara, the child of Cal and Luna Thompson. Cal and Luna are Calvin and Luna were the Imperial torturers before they died, and Tara ran away at the age of fifteen to marry someone who was thirty-five out of desperation. There is a line throughout this play that says desperate people do desperate things, and that could not be more true for Tara. Tara has known desperation and she knows it well. Um having ran away at 15 to marry a man twice her age, who ended up becoming horrible to her because she knew nothing better or nothing different. Her parents were cruel and cold, and this man showed her some kind of love, love, quote-unquote, very loose kind of love, and it made her who she was, kind of a lawful evil type. And, um, trying to think, who else, who else, who else? There's Pitt Prometheus, who is the same, who is, who we've been talking about. Now, Kira, a little bit about her. She is, she was groomed to be the Supreme Commander from a young age, even before she lit her father on fire for hurting her mother. But she was groomed to be the next commander, and she became the next commander, and she's ruthless. And it was not fun for the Empire. But, um, we'll see what happens. 
Now, Terra and Theo are adoptive cousins. Because Prometheus basically adopted Terra as his niece after things went down with Terra's husband. And, like, he ends, he ends up dying and she ends up finding herself in Prometheus's place, carrying a pair of scissors and in a badly, in a wedding, in a wedding dress that's in bad shape. Now, um, and Tara became, like, began a career as basically a spy. She goes and extracts classified information from people she, well, sleeps with and relays that back to the Rebellion and uses her fortune-telling powers for good, question mark? Because, again, she's lawful evil and has a very strong moral code. It's just not orthodox. And that will not, and that's moral code, if someone is hurting someone she cares about, or they stand in her way, or the way of what she perceives as good, she will eliminate them. And she doesn't do it often, but when it needs to be done, it gets done. And she can just go about her day, brush it off like nothing ever happened. So she's a very interesting character, and she gets called a psychopath at one point, and she tells him, she tells the person who called her a psychopath to his face, if someone has a name, if something has a name, call it by its proper name. I'm not a psychopath. I'm evil. Call me by my name. And that was very important to me to write. Because that comes from a conversation I had with a friend a, long, a, a while ago. We were talking about like the nature of like insanity and stuff like that. And we were talking about how like it hurts a lot of people who are like, incorrectly branded as that because it you can call anybody a psychopath and they won't actually be one. Like, and it hurts a lot of people who are able and, like, who are branded as... Let me try and see if I can phrase this. Who are, like... Who choose to be good versus people who choose to be evil. Like, villainy is a choice. You're not born one way or another you are all you have the power to choose and like you can know yourself and you can know what's going on and you can choose to change and i think that's very important and it taught me a lot about a lot of things in a very short amount of time and i knew i had to include that line because on paper tara looks crazy but she knows what she's doing she makes the choices she makes consciously and she sometimes does not choose the quote-unquote right thing to do, but in the end, it's always on the side of the best future. Which is very interesting to me, because sometimes the best future does not entail the quote-unquote right thing to do. But anyway, she is getting ready to go to a ball as the escort of Michael Quill, one obnoxious nobleman. And Theo is questioning her life decisions, honestly. And the and Tara's like, "Hey, come on, trust me. I'm doing this for a good a good reason." And Theo's like, "All right, okay, this is fine." And then they talk about ousting day, which is very important for them because it's like the anniversary of the world waking up again. Because Twine the God Emperor kept everyone under mind control, and after the woman in red. Kills all the secret police in one go. The world's like, oh, I exist. And everyone wakes up. And then there's like this massive rebellion. And long story short, the God Emperor dies and we're here. 
And Tara talks a little bit more about her tragic backstory. And they get ready for the ball and Quill shows up. And they go. Oh, and Tara goes away. Meanwhile, Basil, the prince of the Empire, has caught an inkling that Tara will arrive. Now, I don't know if I said this now or in the take before, but Tara and Basil are set up to be soulmates. Like, in a romantic sense, but that doesn't actually happen. They don't ever fall in love in love. They just discover that they're best friends and get married because they're partners. They are partners. They don't have to be romantically involved or, like, sexually involved to be partners. They're partners. They're platonic soulmates. And that is a very important part of the second play. But they can... They literally smell each other coming. They smell cinnamon. They associate cinnamon with one another. And so they meet at the play. And they go play chess. Because Basil has been getting prepared. They knew each other when they were small. Basil was like a stable hand at their horse farm. Where Tara grew up. And it was kind of a front for like the torture chambers or whatever. And Basil was the stable boy, but he was fascinated with gardening and he would always bring Tara like chrysanthemums and they were pretty much best friends. And, um, so they end up meeting at the ball again. It's been like 30 years almost. And they're like, oh, it's you. Oh, it's you. And they end up playing chess and Basil beats her handily because he has been training for 30 years to beat her at chess. She was the best chess player he'd ever found. And they go. And then meanwhile, like their long sights kind of turned off because both of them can see and smell and taste the future. But they're kind of distracted. And Theo comes running up like, oh, hey, I sense something. And then Tara's like, how did you get here? And Theo says, um... There's something about to happen. And then the doors fly open and Kira comes looking for Theo. To at which point, this is where things get a little odd and the play becomes a little like me. So Tara and Theo and the prince Basil take cover while Kira come, sends men looking in for Theo. And two kids materialize. Elba Ochoa about 17 years old, and Hanno Athelstan, about 12 years old. They show up, and they begin taking out the soldiers, and they shut down the palace, the power, so there's no light, and the soldiers have to reveal themselves by putting on lanterns, like lanterns on their helmets. Tap, 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 power on, power on. And they do so. And then Elba takes them out. Until Cormund McDowell, basically what I like to call a half-human, half-alien cockroach on legs on two legs he's not really a cockroach though i call him a cockroach because he's indestructible and could probably survive a nuclear armageddon but (laughs) that's that and he turns on techno music and takes out the rest of the men with a bow and arrow and then they get the hell out of dodge they show up in Corman's house, slash Tunnel City, slash Rebel Base, and Marsh, Walter Marsh himself is there waiting for him. It, waiting for them. And it turns out that Elba Ochoa is Marsh's granddaughter. Through Archer, because Walter Marsh marries Archer Marin, and Archer Marin has Elizabeth Marin, who marries Belasi Ochoa, and Belasi and Elizabeth 
Elizabeth's, and Elizabeth's already pregnant when they get married, and because weird things happen, she's also a prisoner in the, whatever. Um, she's also a prisoner of another man who's high in command, and she is pregnant with his baby. Elba. Now, Elba and Belasi, Belasi absolutely adopts Elba as his own, because they weren't really together at the time she got pregnant. But, yeah. So... Elizabeth and Belasi get married, and then Elizabeth has Elba. So you get the point. I'd have to, I might draw a family tree later, but so granddaughter, grand, grand grandfather, granddaughter, and Elba is snarky. Elba will be snarky for the rest of the plays, and they all hightail it to the launch bay where Cormand has touched and wrecked some instruments, not musical instruments, but like reading instruments and such. And Corman, no, not Corman, um, Marsh makes an impassioned speech about hope. And after that, the atrium and the launch bay and the surrounding hallways flood with legions of humanoid aliens. Again, like, probably the more I talk about this, the more it's going to sound like I'm on something. But, eh, trust me, it makes sense in its own way. And they get settled in, and they the weird thing about these humanoids is that they revere Cormand. As mentioned before, Cormand Marsh McDowell is the equivalent of a human cockroach. He annoys everyone. Every no one can look on him except for the aliens without getting annoyed. And he's basically an ever-living nuisance. Literal emphasis on ever-living. And very, very, very few people like him. But the aliens see something in him that most don't. Potential. And so the aliens basically bow down and Corman gets everyone straight and then they go on and part, their, part ways. Now, the next scene after that, a young man named Simon Cole, who would be the equivalent of about 19 in human years, is talking to his friend Anne in the hallway. And he says, I don't trust these people. I don't trust these people at all because my commander, the chaplain, made us study them extensively like they were some kind of enemy. I don't trust this Marsh guy at all because when I studied what he'd done... He is sketchy as hell. And Anne's like, aren't they all fanatics, though, in their own way? And he's like, yeah, I guess. And Anne's like, okay, I gotta go. And she scampers off. And then Theo, very lost, very innocent Theo, shows up and asks Simon Cole for directions. This is the beginning of a very interesting relationship because Simon Cole sees this little human and is absolutely floored. Um, especially when she asks him, where do you tall people come from anyway? And Simon eh, has very little clue how to respond. Simon has very little clue to begin with. And he falls head over heels with her for her at that very moment. Now, just in time, that is Act 1, folks. Stay tuned for Acts 2 through 5 in the next few days. 
adieu and good morning or good night, depending on where you are in the world. This is Persephone Jams signing off. Thank you for listening to the Candy for Trees podcast.